This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, my topic this morning is entitled Tree Without a Fence. Tree Without a Fence. I want to begin with a quote from Acts of the Apostles, page 68. The banner of truth and religious liberty held aloft by the founders of the gospel church and by God's witnesses during the centuries that have passed since then has, in this last conflict, been committed to our hands. The responsibility for this great gift rests with those whom God has blessed with a knowledge of His Word. Do you realize there's very few people in this world that know the three angels' message? Very few. Have you been given the gift of understanding God's Word and the three angels' message? To one degree or another, everybody in this room knows something about the three angels' message, right? And so... This responsibility of carrying the truth forward that has been handed to us from other generations is a very incredible responsibility, the sacred trust. I used to run a relay race when I was uh, in law enforcement um, that goes every year in the spring. It starts in a little town called Baker, California, and it ends up in Las Vegas. They pick a different casino every year for the finish line. The race is 120 miles long. And um, that's spread out among 20 runners on your team. So it's a relay race. And um, so every runner has an average of, I guess that would be six miles that they run. And uh, I usually ran in the middle of the night toward the end of the race. But the race would start in the middle of the day when it was hot. And I remember every t- I did it, I think, four years. And every time I would carry that baton, I was mindful of all the blood, sweat, and tears that got the baton to the stage where I was at. All those runners that had run so hard on my team. I wasn't just running for myself. I was running for the whole team. And it wasn't just that day where we had ran. It was, think of all the training that had taken place all year long to get us to that point. Okay? So the same thing in the Protestant Reformation. We stand on the shoulders of amazing people that God has raised up through the centuries, especially in the last 500 years. And so we are carrying on an amazing legacy. Now, we're talking about religious liberty. Let's just start with some basic definitions. What does liberty mean? Okay, it's a noun, right? What is liberty? It means freedom. Freedom from restraint, slavery, or opposition, oppression. Immunity from arbitrary exercise of authority. The capacity to exercise free choice, free will. Amen? Are you glad that God has given us free choice and a free will? What about religion? What does religion mean? Well, one definition is it's a system of faith in and worship of God. So put them together, what do you come up with? Religious liberty. It's really, when you think about it, the freedom of choice to worship God. Is that the end of the story, though? Or not? Okay. It's the freedom to worship God if you want, 
And it's also the freedom to not worship God if you want. It includes freedom to, to worship the God you want, when you want, how you want, and where you want, or not. Are you thankful for the or not part? Or do you wish that God had made us so we have to worship Him? You know, this first talk is focused on the Bible because my friend John is going to focus a lot on the history of the Reformation. I'm going to talk about the mark of the beast, which obviously is in the Bible and other things. But, you know, I just wanted to do a study in the Bible on religious liberty and what we can find in the Bible. And there's a whole lot there. There's a lot more than I ever realized that you can find about religious liberty. And, of course, I just have an hour to share some of the highlights, but there's so much more. Really, when you look at it, religious liberty in the Bible highlights the difference between two kingdoms, the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom of freedom, and the kingdom of Satan, which is a kingdom based on force and fear. Satan loves to use force, the love of force, but Jesus loves the, he, he uses the force of love, and it really highlights the differences between the two. So the to the, uh, the, uh, our, our topic today is a tree without a fence. So let's take a look at that passage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, where I think it kind of begins, at least for humans, on religious liberty. The Bible says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So how many trees did God put in the Garden of Eden? A lot, right? We don't know how many trees. We serve an amazing God. He put probably hundreds if not thousands of trees. And he said, look, you can eat from all these trees. But he also especially gave them the tree of life. And then the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now in verse 16, the Lord God, it says, commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. There's that word free because God's all about freedom. I think if Satan had created the Garden of Eden, he'd have put a thousand trees you couldn't eat from and then one you could eat from, right? God's just the opposite. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, I think there's a little bit of a paradox here. God said they could freely eat from the tree of life and the other trees. But he said that they could, he commanded them not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, were they still free to eat from that tree? So why didn't God say you're free to eat from all of them? Was it true freedom to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? It led to enslavement, didn't it? And so here you have this tree that God says, don't eat from it. Even though God commanded them not to eat from it, he still gave them the freedom, if they wanted to, to eat from that tree. There was no fence around that tree. Are you thankful for that? Amen. Are you thankful that God provided this tree? Some people say, why did God put a tree in there which allowed Adam and Eve to fail because he's love. Can you explain that, Tim? Do you agree with that? Do you think that 
free choice is an important element of love? Would it be love without free choice? Um, could God have created man to not have the power to break his law? He could have done that, couldn't he have? He could have made us robots, right? Without being free moral agents. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 49. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would have been forced, not voluntary. There could have been no development of character. So without freedom of choice, we can't develop character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charge of God's arbitrary rule. God loves us too much to force us to do anything. Now speaking of love, do you ever feel unloved? I have good news for you. You never have to feel unloved again. Did you know you can program computers now to express their love for you? Let me give you an example. Of what you can do with your computer. Look what I've done with mine. What do you think of that? <laughs> Don't tell my wife. <laughs> I have a love affair with my computer. Couldn't God have made us like that? To be robots? Aren't you glad you're not a robot? That you have freedom of choice? Love wouldn't really be love if it was forced. You know, people like to ask philosophical questions. Let me throw a philosophical question out to you. Can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? I think the answer to that question is yes. It's called the human heart. The greatest miracle on this earth is an unconverted heart giving their life to Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? I know for me, that's when my life really changed is when I gave my life to Jesus at a crazy dance party called a rave. Wish I had time to tell you that testimony today. All right, let's move on. So the Garden of Eden highlights this freedom of choice. And then we come to Genesis chapter 4, the story of two worshipers of God, Cain and Abel. Now, were they both worshiping God? At least, over, uh, at least uh, on the outside, they were worshiping God, right? I mean, Cain wasn't overtly worshiping the devil. Who did he bring his sacrifice for? It wasn't for Satan, was it? He was bringing it to God. The problem is he was being disobedient. It wasn't what God had asked for. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, as long as you're sincere, God accepts your worship no matter what it is. But is that really true? Um, so 
God accepted Abel's worship, but not Cain's. And what happened after God did not accept Cain's worship, which really was the fruit of his own labor rather than a lamb that represents the blood of Jesus, right? And so what happened? How did Cain react? He persecuted the true worshiper of God. Cain was a counterfeiter, false worship, and he persecuted the true worshiper of God. And then what did Cain receive as a result? He received a mark. Do you realize that this story has prophetic significance about the mark of the beast, which we'll be talking about at 3 o'clock today? But this highlights the difference between those that truly worship God out of a free and obedient heart from those that don't. And then we come to the Exodus, where God brings his people out of bondage. I think there's lessons even in this topic about religious liberty, because liberty is about freedom, right? What had been the condition of God's people for 400 years? They'd been in slavery. Now, what does slavery represent in the Bible in a spiritual sense? It represents sin, right? Being in bondage to sin and Satan. And so they were commanded to put blood on the doorposts so that the destroying angel would pass over. And this really was kind of an introduction on their escape from Egypt. And of course, then they came to the Red Sea, which they seemed like they thought they were still basically in captivity. Where, how are we going to escape? But God opened the way. He gave them freedom. You know, the Bible is really a, a story of liberation. We're, we're held captive to Satan and sin. And it's a story about God wanting to free us and give us ultimate freedom. I'm thankful for a God of freedom. How about you? Deep within the human heart is a desire to be free. Well, then the children of Israel go into the wilderness and they start getting hungry. So what does God do for them? He rains down manna. Exodus 16, 29 and 30. See for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath. Therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days, Abide ye every man in his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Do you realize that even the Sabbath is a representation of freedom? Freedom from work. Rest. Are you thankful for the Sabbath? Now, when you were growing up, did you sometimes think the Sabbath was maybe boring? How many of you can, you can confess? Did you ever feel like the Sabbath was boring? Oh, it's the day I can't do things. Do you think that's the, what God, how he wants us to look at the Sabbath? Now, of course, as we get older and we work, we begin to appreciate that day of rest, right? My, my friend Calvin likes to call it taking a daycation. Every week you get a daycation. And um, so the Sabbath illustrates freedom. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people accuse Sabbath keepers of being legalists. You're keeping the Sabbath because you're a legalist. You're under the law. It's actually the opposite is true. The Sabbath represents freedom from being saved by our own works, if you read Hebrews 4, right? It represents that we are saved through, through faith in Christ, not through our own works. The Sabbath actually represents not legalism, but freedom. And so the children of Israel were free from having to work on the seventh day of gathering man. They would gather at the six days a week, but not on the seventh. You know, there was a threefold miracle with regard to the manna. 
The fact the manna would fall six days a week, double portion on Friday, and then that portion would keep throughout the Sabbath. Now, did you know that we're going to be worshiping God on the Sabbath for eternity on the new earth? In Isaiah 66, I think it's verse 23. Why are we going to be worshiping God on Sabbath for all of eternity? And what does that symbolize? In Deuteronomy 5.15, it's kind of a, like Exodus 20. It's a listing of the Ten Commandments again. Okay, Notice, Deuteronomy gives us something that we don't have in Exodus 20. Okay, It says, Remember that thou was a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commandeth thee to keep the Sabbath day. So in Deuteronomy 5, what does the Sabbath symbolize? It symbolizes freedom from slavery, right? Freedom from sin. That's why we're going to be keeping the Sabbath throughout eternity, because it's a symbol that we have been freed from sin and its consequences. So the Sabbath is a beautiful example of freedom to wor in worshiping God. And it's interesting that the Sabbath is at the heart of the controversy of the final conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. We see some other examples where God is trying to show in every way possible he wants to free the human spirit. There were some other ways besides the Sabbath that this freedom was demonstrated in the Old Testament. How about with regard to slavery? You know, even after the, uh, the Hebrews escaped from Egypt, they still had slaves. Exodus 21.2, they were commanded by God, if thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So even with, you know, and I think here God is just kind of winking at ignorance and human slavery. God didn't like human slavery, just like he doesn't like polygamy. But he put up with man, Right? But even with God allowing slavery, he says, look, it should have an expiration date. After six years, human slaves should be free. Now, what about this? In Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2, another example of freedom. This is having to do with freedom from debt. At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. How many of you would like to get rid of your debt after seven years? Student loans, that took me 10 years to pay those off. How about you? How about your house? And this is the manner of a release. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. And so we're supposed to release debts after seven years. And so God wanted freedom even from debt. Now, why is debt something that takes away our freedom? You know, in Proverbs 22, 7, it says, the borrower is servant to the lender. You don't have to raise your hand, but do you ever feel enslaved to debt? I want to just throw something out here today. You know, we don't have to follow the American dream and the American way of thinking. The American way of thinking is that after you finish high school, that's just a given you're going to go into heavy student loan debt to get an education. And then when you get out, you're going to get a big fat mortgage that's going to ensure that you're going to have to be a slave to your job the rest of your life. 
And I think work is good. But I know so many people that say, I want to serve God, I'd like to be a missionary, but I have these huge student loans, I have this huge mortgage. Do you know God has lots of ways to work things out where we don't have to go into debt? I have a good friend that just finished Weimar College, which is, it's not as expensive as some colleges, but it's still, you know, they have tuition you have to pay. And my friend doesn't come from means. He doesn't have rich parents. But thankfully, I think this was a blessing because of accreditation issues and stuff. He wasn't able to get student loans. I think that was a blessing in disguise. And so my friend was able to graduate and get his bachelor's degree in theology from Weimar without going into debt. His parents helped some. He had some sponsors. He worked here a little, there a little. Amazing facts helped him out from Canada. And, you know, before you know it, it paid everything. I think we need to get away from this idea, well, I have to go into debt to get an education. That's not necessarily true. Do you know that there's people out there who like to invest in young people? And this idea, you have to go into debt to buy a house, not always. I know a family, and again, they weren't rich. They said, we don't want to go into debt. We'll build as we have the money. And they worked, and they saved, and they built, and they today have a nice house and never had to go into debt to get it. God has ways of providing. I'm thankful that a year ago, my wife and I almost signed a mortgage to buy a house that we wouldn't be in very much because we're traveling all the time, live in a fifth wheel. I'm thankful that it didn't go through because I can't imagine having that payment today. So I think we need to think about not going in debt, going into debt and being a slave. And that's biblical. All right, now let's talk about Daniel. Daniel has some great lessons on religious liberty in the Bible. Um, what happened in Daniel chapter 3? You have a king representing the kingdom of Babylon. He's a king, political power, the government. And he sets up a golden image. And then what does he command people to do to, with the image? Bow down and worship it. And if you don't worship it, you will be killed, thrown into a fiery furnace. This is an amazing story that's prophetic about the mark of the beast at the end. There's a lot of parallels between Daniel 3 and Revelation 13, where it talks about the second beast setting up an image and people having to worship that image, or they will be killed. And so you have all these people, which was they were representative of the whole province of Babylon, bowing down and worshiping that image, except three. Three people said, we're not going to bow down to the image. Daniel was probably on vacation, I don't know. <laughs> the king, maybe he was smart enough to send him on, away on business. Um, this is a good illustration of the establishment of religion, which the First Amendment of the Constitution prohibits. We'll be talking more about that this afternoon and tomorrow. The king established a religion. He expected people to comply. Let's take a closer look at this story. Daniel 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear all kinds of music. Is the devil sometimes use music to get people in the mood for false worship? 
Music can be such a blessing, sacred, uplifting, holy, heavenly music, right? But there's a lot of counterfeit music that has entered into the church. I don't believe when we get into heaven, there's going to be different rooms for people's different musical styles and tastes. I don't believe there's going to be in heaven groups that go, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that music. You know, when you have truly sacred, uplifting music, you don't hear people complaining that it's, I don't feel comfortable with it. They may go, it's boring. It's a little slow, but they don't go, I'm feeling comfortable with it. I don't feel like it's worshipful of God, right? Music should be heavenly and uplifting. Amen? Right, Carl? I appreciate Carl's seminar back at, in San Jose about music. It's still on Audioverse, isn't it? What's the, what's the title of it? <laughs> Carl Salabasidas. Yes. Uh, I used to refer to you as Carl with the last name I couldn't pronounce. T with a bunch of letters. It's Carl Salabasidas. Great seminar on music. Um, at what time you hear all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, okay, make no mistake, worship is at the heart of this battle between good and evil, God and Satan. If you fall down, not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. This really illustrates how Satan operates. His type of worship uses force and fear to get people to comply. God never uses that. He does not want a heart that forces or is forced to worship him. It's always about freedom. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You know, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 7, 16 expresses faith, tremendous faith in God. God's going to, God is going to save us. But even if he doesn't, even if he chooses not to, we will not engage in the worship of an idol because we worship God, the true God. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inner, inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Who will stand for the right though the heavens fall? That's the way these three people were. And so they refused to engage in false worship. Now, did they understand they had the freedom to choose? No death decree, no threat can get you to do anything, right? You know, we call it forced worship. But can the devil really force us to worship? You know, Flip Wilson was famous for that phrase, the devil made me do it. Can the devil make you really do anything? We ultimately have the choice ourselves, don't we? This is a good illustration of the kingdom of Christ versus the kingdom of Satan. The force of love versus the love of force. God only wants worship out of a willing heart. Great Controversy, page 493. God desires from all his creatures the service of love, homage that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in a forced allegiance and do all he grants freedom of will, 
that they may render him voluntary service. How different from the way Satan operates. One of the things I like about this story is it illustrates that all of us, if we serve Christ, are going to have to go through trials. Have you been through a trial because of your faith before? Maybe someone today is going through a very difficult trial in your life. I have good news for you. When you're going through the fiery trials, when the fire is the hottest, who's the closest? Who showed up to save these men when they were in the middle of the fire? Jesus did. If you're going through a trial in your life, all the more reason to to cling closely to Jesus and depend on him. Amen? He wants to help us. Then we come to Daniel 6, the story of Daniel getting thrown to the lions. Here you have Daniel worshiping God. And I hope that someday this is said of me. The presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find what? None occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Do you realize that Christians should be the most law-abiding citizens on earth? With one exception. Speed limit. (laughs) Okay, John, we know where your weakness is. Lord's working with him. That, that brings up a good point. You know, that, in fact, I challenge you to ask my friend Jonathan, who's going to be preaching next, this question. See, he doesn't think speed limits um, matter. Okay? In other words, uh, we have this ongoing argument. I believe, you know, he says it's not a moral issue. I believe even whether you follow the speed limit is a moral issue. Do you agree with that? Should we follow the speed limit? Which one? All of them. You know, Christians should be law-abiding, except, what's the one exception? Not speed limit. If it conflicts with the law of God, right? Uh, Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel. Then they kind of say this Daniel, kind of like putting him down, this Daniel guy. Um, We'll find no occasion against him, except we find it against him concerning what? The law of his God. Wouldn't you like to be known as that kind of person? The only way we'll get them to do something that we don't want them, that we want them to do is to get them to break God's law. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me say that again. The only way we'll get against these people is that we find an occasion because they are keeping God's law. If we make a law against what God says, that's the only way we'll get him to do something wrong. Um, The image in Daniel 3 is a good illustration of establishing religion and interfering with uh, that principle of the government not establishing religion. Um, Daniel 6 is a good illustration of interfering with the free exercise of religion. Okay, Here Daniel is worshiping God his way, the way God has asked him to, and they try to interfere with that. So the establishment of religion is... The government saying you have to do it our way. And the free exercise of religion has to do with the government saying you can't do it your way. Very interesting comparison that we'll be looking at in the First Amendment. Now let's talk about God's law. Since both of these stories in Daniel lend themselves to talking about law, what does that have to do with freedom and religious liberty? You know, David said, 
and I will, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts, thy laws. What is the connection between religious freedom and the law of God? Is there a connection? Well, this verse tells us there is, right? What we find here is if you want true freedom, then obey God's law. And what, what's so interesting is the devil has totally turned that around. And he says, God's law takes away your freedom. If you want freedom, then do your own thing. Do us what thou wilt. That's kind of the slogan of the satanic Bible. Do what thou wilt. But the Bible tells us God's law brings freedom. James also makes this clear. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. What law is James referring to here? It's not about the law of the Ten Commandments, right? And then notice how he refers to the Ten Commandments. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. You mean God's law is a law about freedom? Have you, you can confess to me. Have you ever considered God's law to take away your freedom? Maybe in the short term it seems that way, but in the long term you realize that God's law brings freedom. Does anybody have car keys here today? I didn't bring any because I left them home. Does anybody have car keys? Did Someone had to have driven here. Okay, thank you, sister. You know, I have good news for you. On the new earth, there'll be no need for these. Do you realize that these keys symbolize that we do not truly live in a free society? This represents the, facts that the, the, the fact that we live among thieves. Right? We don't truly live in a free society. Imagine if everybody kept God's law. Thank you. You wouldn't need keys anymore. Um, I know a family near and dear to me where one of the uh, parents decided God's law was a little restrictive and wanted to go outside the marriage covenant and go find a new lover, breaking up the family, thinking, oh, this will bring freedom. In the end, it takes away freedom. It breaks up a family. Now, is liberty freedom from responsibility? No, it includes responsibility, doesn't it? Um, true freedom comes through obedience to God. That's where we find freedom. In fact, Proverbs 29, 18 says, He that keepeth the law of God, happy is he. Now, I don't know much about this picture or the photographer, but I know one thing. That photographer had to have been glad that there was something between him and that ferocious lion. You know, the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What has God given us as protection against the attacks of the devil? Jesus and his law. The problem is, too many of us try to get as close as we can to that boundary that's supposed to protect us, right? We flirt with the devil. Or even get inside the pen and then guess who eats us for lunch? God's law is there to protect us. 
You know, to have true freedom requires surrender. Ministry of Healing, page 131. Giving up freedom to have true freedom. When one surrenders to Christ, the mind is brought under the control of the law. But it is the royal law which proclaims liberty to every captive. By becoming one with Christ, man is made free. Subjection to the will of Christ means restoration to perfect manhood, perfect womanhood. Obedience to God is liberty from the thraldom of sin, deliverance from human passion and impulse. Man may stand conquer of himself, conquer of himself, conquer of his own inclinations, conquer of principalities and powers, and of the rulers of the darkness of this world and of spiritual wickedness in high places. I want to be free from wickedness in high places. How about you? And so God asks us to be obedient, to do his will. Review and Herald, March 15, 1906, Ellen White says, each human being is given the freedom of choice. It is his to decide whether he will stand under the black banner of rebellion or under the bloodstained banner of Prince Emmanuel. With deep solicitude, heaven watches the conflict between good and evil. None but the obedient can enter the gates of the city of God. Upon those who choose to continue in transgression, the death sentence must at last be pronounced. The earth will be purified from their misdoings, their defiance of God. Only one group's going to make it to heaven, right? Those that love Jesus enough to be obedient to him. I want to tell you about a very creepy kidnapping case that I was involved in back in my DA days. This was in 2007. There was a couple that lived in Riverside, California, a prominent business couple. They had money. Their names were Ted and Linda. One day in March of 2007, around noon, Ted received a frantic call from his wife, Linda. She said, oh, I've fallen down. Come home. Ted comes home. He looks everywhere for his wife and he can't find her. But what he does find is a white envelope with his name on the outside, Ted which arrested his attention. It had his name on it. He opened up the envelope and found a nine-page ransom note and two Polaroid pictures of his wife with a hood over her head, bound. She was so scared when the pictures were taken, she urinated on herself. And this is what greeted Ted when he came home. Very creepy note. This is how the note read. I'll just give you a few of the highlights. We need to make a few things clear right out of the gate, Ted. First, if you want to see your wife alive again and have your lives return anything close to normal again, do not call the police or anyone else. If you do, your wife will die. Read through this document twice. Take your time since we know your mind is racing. At the bottom of the first page, it said, It is obvious that we have kidnapped your wife for ransom. We are very dangerous. Don't question our resolve. Just do what we say. Don't call the police. We're watching your every move. We are monitoring the FBI and the police. And most of the note talks about how he should go get money. And he's asking for $140,000. He said, you've got to go to your banker. Now, don't tell him what's going on. Just 
act excited about something you want to buy. If you're into boats, tell them you found a new boat. If you're into gold, tell them you're excited about buying some gold. If you're into planes, tell them you want to buy a plane. Tell them you need the money and you need it now. Remember, through all of this, sound calm and even upbeat. Giddy at times. You're about to get something you really want in more ways than one. Very creepy. At the end of the note, it said, don't try to be a hero. Bruce Willis is not going to come rescue you. And then he gave instructions on how there would be four different sites where there would be drop, uh, four different drop sites where there would be instructions to go to the next site, kind of like a scavenger hunt, on, take them on a, a chase. He said, follow our instructions to a T and you and Linda will come out just fine. And this is how it ends. This guy's so crazy. He says, if you don't follow our instructions, you'll be lamenting later saying things like, the money wasn't important. I would have done anything to get her back, etc." Well, now is the time to enact those policies. Don't be the guy known for the rest of your life as the one that got his wife killed over $140,000. People may not say it to your face, but they will always remember it. It will be the story that precedes you every time you go somewhere that someone knows you. It will be your legacy. Well, Ted did not call the police. He called his banker. Eventually, the banker got suspicious and called the police. Although that didn't result in the apprehension of the suspect. What happened was this van kept driving into this area in the Lake Hills area between Riverside and Corona where the, where the driver of the van actually would have a view of the, one of the drop sites where Ted was supposed to go. And uh, some neighbors got suspicious, called the police, and Deputy Portellis is our hero. He showed up and saw this van pulling a motorcycle and a man fanning, trying to put air into the back of the van. And he questioned the guy. His story didn't make sense. He asked him, do you mind if I look inside? And when he looked in, he saw this virtual casket cracked open. And when the officer looked, he saw a woman inside that casket. There was Linda. Could hardly breathe with a hood on her head, bound. She'd been that way for seven hours. And Deputy Portellis rescued the victim. Linda told the story of how earlier that day she'd gotten a knock at her door. She thought it was a delivery man. He had a uniform, had a van with, looked like a delivery van for mail. She opened the door and he immediately ran into her house, attacked her, uh, shocked her with a stun gun, and then bound her and forced her to call her husband and then led her around on this chase for seven hours. Very interesting. And what was really creepy is when they investigated the van and searched this guy's apartment, they found that for four months he'd been surveilling this couple. For four months he'd been watching them to see what their habits were, who lived in the house. And they found files on 15 different prominent families in Riverside where he'd been watching these families to see who he could take advantage of. Sometimes he would have notes in the file. Is, is the woman too old? Would she survive? Very creepy. Thankfully today, Mark Warren, 
as serving life without the possibility of parole in California State Prison, which is where the kidnapper belongs. You know, what's that? You know, I haven't visited him, Tim, but I can give you his contact information <laughs> if you want to go pay a visit. You know, as disturbing as this story is, there's something more disturbing in this world that gets less attention. And that is the enemy of souls has kidnapped most of the people on this earth and enslaved them to sin. All of us have at one time or another been captive to Satan. And when we continue to sin and live in the life of sin, we're, we remain in captive. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. You know, the good news is, we can be free from sin. Amen. Romans 6.16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. There's two paths that we can go on. And you know, the good news is the Bible is full of promises that we can be complete overcomers. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness, which is true freedom. I really, I guess it boils down to this in the study that I did on some of these religious liberty themes in the Bible, what I discovered in the Bible, there's really two grand truths regarding religious liberty, and that is God gives us the freedom to sin if we want. He gives us that free choice. But when we're tired of that life and we want to be rescued, He gives us the freedom from sin. Remember, why was Jesus named Jesus? She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, not in their sins, but from their sins. Jesus himself said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Is there someone brokenhearted today? Jesus wants to heal you to preach deliverance to the captives. Is there someone here today addicted to sin? Jesus wants to deliver you. The recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And uh, even in the life of Christ, we see this principle of giving deliverance, freedom. There were times when his disciples wanted Jesus to use force. In Luke 9, 54 and 56, Lord, wilt thou then we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? This is when his disciples were slighted by the people of a Samaritan village. The apostle John was filled with indignation. That's one of the sons of thunder. And he says, Jesus, you want us to command fire and consume them? With pity, Jesus rebuked this harsh spirit. And he said, the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, to give them true freedom. You know, Calvary is another tree without offense. 
There is nothing that stands in the way between someone and their ability to come to Jesus and surrender their life to him. And I'm thankful for that opportunity for me. When I was ready finally to surrender my life to Jesus, there was no condemnation. There was nothing to keep me away but my own choice. And I finally surrendered that. And the good news of Calvary is it not only gives us freedom from the penalty of sin, it gives us freedom from the power of sin. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Whoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, but if the Son shall therefore make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Jesus said, Come unto me, all that you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Now, a yoke is an instrument of service, right? Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you love me, keep my commandments. Sometimes we use the expression, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, right? That's an interesting study to look at those words, Lord and Savior. You know, whether we accept it or not, Jesus died to save us, didn't he? He's our Savior, even if we reject that gift. But you know, the one title he really covets that can only be given if we freely surrender to him is the title Lord. I think that's why the Bible emphasizes that word so much. How many times do you think the word Savior appears in the King James Bible? Any guesses? 37 times. That's it. How many times does the word Lord appear? Over 7,000 times. You cannot hardly turn a page of the Bible without seeing the word Lord. Lord. Six times on every page. I think there's a message there. Because that's really where the great controversy is won and lost. Freedom is gained or not. If we accept Jesus as our Lord. In every area of our life, total surrender. Unfortunately, the Jews, even though he wanted to gather them together, they were not willing. You know, to overcome sin and wickedness, without Jesus, we cannot. And without Jesus, without us, Jesus, let me say that again, I butchered that. To overcome sin and wickedness, without Jesus, we cannot. And without us, Jesus will not. But Jesus so desperately wants to free us from sin. And I want to just encourage us to do like Jesus did when we're tempted. When the Satan comes around to get us to sin. And that is to use the words of Scripture as our weapon. It is written, it is written, it is written, right? And there's so many promises in the Bible that promise us freedom from sin. Um, don't let people tell you you can't overcome in this life. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is full of promises, and I don't have time to go through them all. 2 Peter 1, 4 is one of my favorite. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through sin or through lust. All right. Here are some more promises. And I think we're about out of time. 
Tomorrow, we're going to be looking at A.T. Jones's argument about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the things that are God, the things to God, how Jesus talked about the separation of church and state. And I had other things I wanted to go through, but our time is up. By the way, is freedom uh, totally free? Or does it come with a price? Didn't Jesus demonstrate on the cross that freedom comes at a very sacred price? You go to Arlington Cemetery, you realize that freedom actually costs something, but it's totally worth it. And liberty of conscience is a sacred principle that we must uphold, even at the price of blood, our blood. Perhaps you heard the story of a slave who was on the auction block. And he was very strong, strapping, looked like he'd make a good worker. The only problem is he kept saying, I will not work. But the bids kept going up. Finally, a man paid a high price to buy this slave. And he kept saying, I will not work. I will not work. And he protested. And when the man took him to his estate, he actually took the handcuffs off and the man kept saying, I will not work. And the man said, I did not buy you for you to be my slave. I bought you to set you free. And when the man realized this man had purchased his liberty, his freedom, he said, I will work for you for the rest of my life. And isn't that what Calvary is really about? When Jesus sets us free from sin, from slavery, we want to serve him for the rest of our life. Someone once asked the artist, why isn't there a latch on the outside where Jesus is knocking? And the artist says, oh, there is a latch, but it's on the inside. Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't break in the door like the government. He only comes in if we ask him to. How many of you want to open that door today to Jesus? Let's stand together, shall we, as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful that You are a God of freedom and that you've given us many examples in the Bible of your desire to liberate us and to give us freedom from sin and even ourselves at times. Lord, I pray that we would accept this free gift and that, Lord, if there's someone here struggling with sin today in their life, Lord, I pray that you would help that person. Realize that you have the power to give them victory through the blood of Jesus. Lord, help us to be truly free to live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.